On today's episode, we speak with Dr. Shauna Springer, known in the military community and veteran community as Doc Springer. She is a best-selling author, frequently requested keynote speaker, and one of the world's leading experts on psychological trauma, military transition, suicide prevention, and close relationships. A Harvard graduate who has become a trusted doc to the nation's military warfighters, she navigates different cultures with exceptional agility. As chief psychologist for Stella, she advances a new model for treating psychological trauma that combines biological and psychological interventions. Doc Springer is a licensed psychologist who is frequently sourced by the media for her uniquely perspective insights on trauma recovery, post-traumatic growth, psychological health, and interpersonal relationships developed from two decades of work at the extremes. Doc Springer's work has been featured in multiple media outlets, including CNN, Vice, NPR, NBC, CBS Radio, Forbes, Business Insider, Military Times, Gun Talk Radio, Coffee or Die Magazine, the Marine Corps Gazette, Havoc Journal, Thrive Global, Anxiety.org, Washington Post, and Psychology Today. Why did you get into psychology in the first place? And then being somebody who didn't serve in the military, why do you have uh, such a passion for veterans. Sure, fair enough. Um, so I wish I could say that I had it all planned out, but that is just not true on either of those. Um, let me take your second question first. Why do I have such a passion for working with veterans? I had an unconventional upbringing, even by California standards. And um, my parents took the idea of free range parenting, you know, like letting your kids have some freedoms and uh, took that to the, the like, <laughs> took that to the extreme degree. So when I was very young, uh, they had us running around the track, you know, in the morning at like five in the morning in the dark so that we could like be conditioned. Um, and we would run in the local track meet every year. Um, we would do mission projects like foreign service projects every summer by ourselves starting at the age of 10, you know, they'd send me down to usually um, South America and we would do ministry work with different families that live down there. And so I think from an early age, you know, having these experiences that really pushed me way out of my cultural comfort zone, I had to go in and build trust and become part of these different literal tribes. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, going to the Amazon river, to live with the Shipibo Indians. We're talking about like tribes in the, you know, original sense of the word. Um, hunting alligators on the boat with them at night with harpoons. That's an original tribe and they have their warriors. And so learning how to become a part of that group, um, I think gave me kind of an, an instinctive understanding of the culture of service that drives our service members. Um, our warriors. And um, when I started working with veterans, it just felt right, you know, just felt right for me. So um, I don't have a history of military service, but 
I share a lot of common values with a lot of people who have served because of the sort of unusual way in which I was raised. Um, your second question, or your first one really was, how did I get into psychology? Again, I was supposed to go to law school, so it's not as though I really had it all figured out. I was an English major. I took one psychology course at Harvard, you know, it was intro psych. Um, and I just, you know, never really envisioned I would do anything but go to law school and become a lawyer. And uh, I was studying for the LSAT, just, you know, I was feeling that sense of like in my gut, this is not a good fit for me. And so went through a process of soul searching and remembered back to high school that oftentimes I would end up just being the de facto counselor in my group of friends. Like if people had a problem, they would come to me and tell me and you know we'd figure it out um, and so being in that role just felt like a natural fit for me and I had a lot of catching up to do to get into a program to get my PhD to kind of do all my training requirements but but I did that and um, became a psychologist and it's it's been a great fit for me um, for the the arc of my career the word tribe is kind of new to me how how was that to be with a real original tribe yeah so um, if you haven't read it yet I have to plug um, Sebastian Uger's book tribe on homecoming and belonging um, it is a book that takes the concept of what a tribe originally meant and helps map that on to what military service members create with each other which is an interdependent family of people that um, pool their resources, that would lay down their lives for each other, that serve a common purpose. So his definition of tribe, and this is going back to your question about the original understanding of tribe, is the people that you would share the last of your food with. A very practical definition of tribe. I really like that. In my work, I've done a lot of work with couples and around intimacy and relationships and the families that we create um, and that we choose not just by marriage but in terms of the military tribe and i would actually add something to that definition which is that i believe your tribe is the people that you take your armor off with and that you know you can tell them anything and that they will not judge you but they will treat you with respect and dignity and they will walk with you through the valleys in your life. I love that. I really do. Because that is something that I am have had to learn and I'm still learning of finding myself in a place of vulnerability with somebody and say, hey, look, here's my crap. Um, take me or leave me. And um, it, it's been great. And I remember, I remember the point in which the point in time in which I had to realize um, okay I'm gonna put myself out there and I and I had to tell myself you're setting yourself up to get hurt which has happened but all the hurt that I've experienced when I put myself out there from people has yeah. been well worth it because of the good people that I've connected with and I've not heard it put the way you just did with the with that of being able to say here's my stuff this is who i am let's do life and i think that's great yeah thanks and a, a trusted doc or a trusted coach can be an extension of your tribe but there's mm -hmm. a different boundary there like you wouldn't call them at 3 a.m 
And so there's kind of like layers of tribe. And so, you know, there's the tribe that you can call at three in the morning and say, I'm not okay, right? Those are those people you develop in your life. But a trusted doc or a trusted coach will also offer that same radical safety where you can tell them anything and they're not gonna judge you. Mm -hmm. Whatever you've been through, I assure you, you're not the only one. Um, and, and that message and hearing people's vulnerability is the way that gives space for people, right? To step into that vulnerability themselves. Yeah. Your book, Warrior, uh, what's, what's it about? What, where did it stem from? Yeah. So Warrior is kind of the product of 10 plus years that I've spent walking with warriors. Um, and it is really all of the things I wish I had known when I started the process of working with veterans, war fighters, service members, the military and veteran community, the spouses, the partners. I wish I had known these things. So it's 10 chapters on different areas where I feel like my understanding has been dramatically enhanced by these unusual uh, levels of trust that warriors have held with me and shared with me what's really going on with them. So there's chapters about our conversations about firearms and what they mean to to warriors. There's a chapter about um, survivor guilt, moral injury, and shame. There's a chapter about uh, grief. There's a chapter about relationship rage. There's a chapter about barriers to treatment and developing trust with a doc or a healer. So these different chapters kind of lay out and develop these insights through stories and concepts. And then each chapter ends with a, um, a universal principles, a set of universal principles that I learned from this work that apply to all humans, not just warfighters and service members, um, as well as questions. Because actually, I don't know if I've really shared this on a podcast, but my background, you know, in terms of graduate school, my signature course that I taught at University of Florida, developed from scratch, built, was personal growth. That was my, like, as a, you know, sort of professor in training, I had a hundred students in my class. I would lecture to them and develop exercises to move them through to professional and personal growth. So really, I want to always create opportunities for people to not just stay up here in their heads with the theory, but give them ways to develop those insights and apply them. That's how I think we change. Um, Yeah, I like to say that, you know, um, insight without action isn't worth anything. Yeah. We have to pair the two up. But in my perception in the field, our definition of moral injury is far too narrow. Um, What I have seen is people define moral injury as something that we did or couldn't do that does not align with our moral values. So originally in the field, um, and these are, you know, pioneers in the field that really introduced this. Originally, the first concept around moral injury was, um, you know, things that you were exposed to in the combat zone that violated your moral code. Um, and so over time, I think moral injury got equated for some people with atrocities of war, things like Mili and things that 
you know, were clear examples of atrocities perpetuated by service members on uh, local people. And so it got a little bit of a, a taint to the term. Moral injury means like there's a presumption that you did something wrong or morally despicable or outside of your moral code. But that is just not what I saw in the vast majority of cases of people who were impacted by moral injury. And so in the book, I argue that we need a much wider aperture of understanding for moral injury. And I'll give you an example, Tiffany. Just surviving when someone you love like family dies shifts the entire moral framework for your life, for all of your future, in many cases. So here's how that works. So you're in the combat zone or there's a training accident, people die in all kinds of ways when they're in service. It's a high risk occupation. So you survive, someone you love like family dies. And then let's go back to our earlier conversation prior to like the, when we started officially recording, we talked about how transition is a very difficult time for lots of people. Um, many people hit a wall and they have an identity crisis and they do things that are out of character. Maybe people fall into excessive drinking or they can't hold down a job or they are rageful in their family relationships. Now, what people do is they often compare their own experience with the ghost of the person they lost. And they idealize that person and they say, that person never would have struggled like this. And they died. Who am I that was worthy to survive? And that develops a type of shame that can metastasize into a cancerous form of shame that can be a suicide risk factor. When it's not addressed in a treatment relationship or other relationship where someone feels radically safe to reveal that and really hit it head on. So moral injury to me is a much broader term and I think we're missing a lot when we just think about it so narrowly. Right. So then let me ask you this. So one of the talks that I used to give um, in seminars when I was at the VA was recovering from infidelity. It's a very common issue in many marriages, not just military marriages, but American marriages. We know that 50% of couples divorce and 63% of those who remarry divorce. So we're not doing very well maintaining these strong, stable bonds with the people we say are our soulmates. Okay. So infidelity. What's interesting is if you look at that literature, 70% of couples stay together after infidelity. But there has to be an intentional process where that gets flushed out and reckoned with. Otherwise, it can really destroy the relationship trust from the inside out. And if you don't have that trust, it's hard to imagine having intimacy with someone. Yeah, with the transition, I think it's, it's just uh, that transition is so hard to turn that corner and be like put the uniform off because in the military, I can look at you and size you up in 10 seconds and because of what your uniform looks like and identify you as whatever because of what your uniform, all the stuff on your uniform. But in the, in, as, a, as a civilian, as a veteran, the clothes that you put on, it's not the same. And so that, I think that's a big thing of where the identity crisis is. And then maybe uh, pre-existing mental health issues from the military. 
and then feeling all alone because in the military I could handle this but now I'm in a completely different world um, is a hard thing for veterans so what like and, and a lot of them turn to suicide a lot of them don't but what do you what do you recommend for a veteran to do like how can I cope with this drastic change in my life well, this is why Jason Roncaroni and I wrote Beyond the Military. It is a self-led 400-page book to take people through that process of transition from the psychological, identity, cultural, and relationship perspectives. Um, many people in transition feel stripped of their armor. You know, taking off that uniform is symbolic to their identity and where they are in that community. Um, and they enter this other community where they feel like strangers in a strange land. And to your point, you know, where you really have to develop a different way of building trust and understanding who someone is, you don't, it's not written on their chest. You can't size them up immediately. You have to develop um, trust in different ways and do it in intentional ways and not just stay kind of connected only to veterans, although that's an important part of stay connected to your tribe, to remember who you are as a warrior, but but you also have to develop functional, intimate relationships with, you know, not only your family but your neighbors and the community of people around you. And so that book takes people through exercises and strategies and really practical ways to do that because it's so hard for so many people. So Jason and I are writing this book and we we're thinking like, people are not going to pull off the line. They can't pull people off the line and put them in like you know, months of very costly classes. So let's create this book and for 20 or 30 bucks, sell people on Amazon, this comprehensive integrated program of transition that they can walk themselves through for the cost of like going to Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's why we did that book. And so, you know, that's the resource that I would recommend it. Jason and I poured everything that we have on that topic at that time anyway and i think it's still really what i would want to say now uh, is stuff on identity and, and taking off the uniform and understanding that it's the person who makes the uniform not the opposite some of those key insights about who we are and how to kind of hold connection with that as we move through transition are really critical As I transition out the military mm -hmm. and I'm looking to establish this new tribe, I know there's not a specific magical number of this is my tribe, but in looking for a tribe, I know I can't have just one person and dump all my stuff on that one person. Right. So, so how, how do I go about establishing my tribe to where I'm not burning somebody else out? Um, but I'm also not putting all of my stuff out there for the whole world. Yeah, so your army, right? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a core unit. You have to have a core unit, not a battle buddy, but a core unit. Um, and so here's, here's a thought exercise that I don't know if I shared this in my work, but I've shared it at other times in talks I've done. So imagine for just a second that you did something that was tremendously embarrassing. Like it burns you with shame when you think about it. I'm not going to tell you to tell me what it is, but just pull that to mind for a second. 
And let's just imagine that I said, okay, um, you have to tell five people in your life about this thing you did. And if you don't, then somehow magically it's going to show up on social media and get blasted out to everybody you've ever met, right? So you're persuaded. Okay, I'm going to tell these five people that is the lesser of two evils. Who do you tell? Who do you tell in your life? So those people that you would tell that horribly shameful thing to are probably your core unit. And they might not be the people you'd expect. Like as you kind of think about who do I go to with that, it might be somebody that you haven't seen in a while that's safe to you, but you haven't actively nurtured or cultivated that friendship. So thinking about who those people are in your life is important so that you're not relying on one person and really just, it doesn't become you, any person really dumping all of their stuff on one person. Nobody wants that. That's not the basis of tribe either for people to just, you know, always take it. It should be a reciprocally supportive relationship. So then the next question you think about is, would I offer the same thing for those people? And would they say that I'm that person to them? And if they wouldn't say that, there's a little work to do in terms of developing some relationships with some people that are bi-directionally supportive, that are mutually supportive relationships, where you walk together and you, as you said, do life together in a supportive way where nobody is like um, expending a huge proportion of the energy, but you're really coming to that relationship in a way that is, um, you know, mutual and mutually respectful. One of the big reasons why people like me and like coaches and have to have boundaries is that if I ask that everybody goes, oh, you're, you're in my tribe. And I think, no, that's a different relationship. I don't pull energy from you or ask you anything. It, it's a, a service I offer um, from time to time for a few people in my life. And I don't even have time for that anymore. So to me, friendship is very different from uh, walking with someone as a dog. And what we're talking about is developing deep and tight intimacy and friendships with people in your life where you're supporting them in equal measure. So life gets busy and you get a full plate and you find that you're uh, not connecting with this tribe yep. as frequently as you feel you should. How, how do you go about addressing that? Well, you have to be intentional about it. Like I don't do well with this some weeks when I get overwhelmed. Sometimes I'm sure people in my life would say, Hey, I haven't heard from you in like a few months or like, you know, this is not me standing on the high hill here and saying like, but I can tell you how to do it because when I do it right, this is what works for me. I'm intentional about making a list of the people in my life that I want to stay in connection with. And then you can put that reminder in your phone and use your devices for a helpful reason instead of as a perpetual distraction. You can carve out time or say, I'm going to connect with this person or send them a note or whatever, and just put that as a reminder in your phone. So once you've identified that core unit, it's important to be proactive and intentional about developing and maintaining those relationships. And I don't always do well with that, but I know that that's a way that can really work. Um, to make that happen practically. Before we run out of time, one of the questions I would want to ask you is for the people maybe who are listening to the podcast who 
we can't connect with people like we were stuck in COVID, would like to, or maybe we're used to doing. You know, if I struggle with depression, COVID might be making me even, it might accentuate my depression. Sure. Or, or, or anxiety yeah. of not knowing what's what. So how, how would you tell people to navigate these things in this environment? Anxiety and depression are skyrocketing for a lot of people right now. It absolutely makes sense. It makes us, um, it makes it all the more important to connect. When we connect, we survive. And intentional connection has never been more important. So because we've lost all those incidental connections of, you know, going to Starbucks and seeing people in our community or our coworkers or whatever, it's really important to be very intentional about expressing gratitude for people. And again, I don't always get this right. I spoke to a woman that, that I admire who does good work named Rosemary Williams, and she gave me this advice and it was really wise. She said, make a list of the people that are in your direct support network and maintain those relationships. And I, I do that in fits and spurts and I'm not always good with it, but over the balance of these months, I've had a lot of social contact with a lot of different people that I feel are, are supporters of mine. Um, and so like there's people all the time that are giving so much to support me that I always constantly feel this guilt like, I'm not responsive enough. I'm not supportive. Danica Thomas is one example. She uh, was generous enough to like teach me some stuff about Instagram recently that I just, I don't get it. I don't get Instagram, but she taught me a lot and was really generous about supporting me that way. And like, I should probably make efforts to be more intentional about connecting with the people that do support me. But that's the way, that's the way is, is to really just use your technology to explicitly connect with people, make that a priority, find the time with them, uh, whether it's, you know, connecting for like a virtual coffee. I've done that with a number of people. Uh, virtual coffee dates are really fun and just always start the day out right and remind me of that tribe of people that's out there and that extended network of support that, that I need to feel like this work, I'm not just working in a void, you know, or in my own vacuum. I need that connection. And like all of us, like one of the biggest, I would say one of the saddest weekends of like for me this whole year personally has been missing a reunion with these Marines that I care so much about. This is the first year in many years I haven't gone because I knew that regardless of what I told myself about social distancing and being safe, so I wouldn't have to quarantine for my little kids when I got back, I would see these guys and I would have to have a hug because <laughs> it's just like, it would just happen. There'd be bear hugs, you know? Uh -huh. So like I was trying to project into that future weekend and say, I just can't go because I can't, I wouldn't be able to say, no, 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 you know, stay away from me because that's just, it's not the relationship or the trust that we share. And so for this year, I had to say, I'm going to protect my little kids this year. I don't want to quarantine from them or bring any risk into our house right now. I'm in a place in California where we've been hit really hard. We've just gone on lockdown again. And some of the work I do around COVID has really been with frontline providers on those um, medical units where people are COVID positive. So I probably admittedly have a pretty biased view. You know, people talk about, well, the risk isn't that great. Okay, but I know the people 
that are losing hundreds of patients over you know the months that they're in these COVID positive units. And I'm interviewing people that have long haul COVID and terrible, terrible health problems from COVID. So I have this view of the risk that I think a lot of people don't have, but um, I think I'm, I'm getting off track here. But my point is like, this is a painful time and I'm, I'm part of uh, this group of people that feels like 2020 just needs to go. It's been a horrible year of continuous trauma, of wildfires, of racial conflict, devastating like levels of um, just bigotry and, and just all of these things that we've been seeing in our society. We need to move on and heal from this. Um, but for right now, for the next few months, until we can get back to kind of a new normal, once we're all vaccinated, hopefully, um, we will have to be intentional about connecting with our tribe. Yeah. Long-winded answer, Tiffany. Sorry, more than you wanted to know. Well, let me tell you about one more thing, though, that, that Jennifer, yeah. Tracy, and I are doing to kind of scale the work we're doing in this virtual disconnected world. Sure. So we're creating something called Redefine Your Mission. RedefineYourMission.com is the website. And people can go, they can buy a copy of each of our books and then purchase a, um, a guided learning series where they will get from each of us for each chapter in our books, um, a weekly, you know, video straight talk, like a few minutes, one from me, one from Jennifer, and then some principles that are like the key principles in that chapter and questions to guide insight and reflection. And our vision is for people to do that in groups, to do that in their tribes, to walk through those guided learning experiences and really develop some insights around mental warfare and about these kind of mental health battles, you know, that, that we face, especially right now with COVID. So that's something that uh, we're launching and we've been working on developing that. And, and that's how we, I think, can scale insight and give people a way to, uh, with technology, to connect, to discuss those uh, insights and, and that content with each other and develop that deeper, tighter, more trusting relationship as a result of having that experience. Thanks for, thanks for doing your this. Support. Yeah, no, <laughs> Jinx. Uh, <laughs> thanks for your support around the work that, that I'm doing and that Jennifer and I are doing. Um, we really, you know, this is something we wanted to launch um, to really help a lot of people that we think need this kind of support. And so we're trying to do our best to get this launched and out and uh, available to folks. Hi, this is John McCaskill, recently retired Navy SEAL commander. I just wanted to say uh, what an honor it was to serve as a, as a service member within the Navy and, uh, and what an honor it is now to be a veteran serving my fellow veterans in the nonprofit space. Thank you to all those who serve uh, or have served in, in or out of uniform as a, as a service member or as a family member. So thank you to all the veterans out there, and we remember and honor you. Thanks. The first thing that comes to mind when I think about being a veteran is sacrifice because you sacrifice a lot.
And if you're trying to raise a family in the military, they too sacrifice a lot. But I'd be remiss if I did not think about those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. Also, when I look at the faces of my family, when they talk about my career, I see great pride. And and that gives me great joy. If I've ever served with you, I thank you. I could not thank you enough for your contribution to my career. If you are currently serving, I commend you. And I would say, do not be a 60% soldier, be a 100% soldier, so that at the end of the day, when you look in that mirror, you too can feel great pride. I want to thank you, say be safe, and God bless. Being a veteran means having the honor and privilege to serve our country and to be alongside others who made and continue to make the ultimate sacrifice. Thank you. Have a nice day.